0: One true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast, going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 52nd episode of the Nauticast entitled, John of the Dead. Oh yeah, we're punning it up here. An analysis of a Game of Thrones John 7 in which the dead night's watchmen stare with cold blue eyes before coming to life. Because this is Thriller!
1: Thriller night. I tried to stop now, him, you, folks. I gave him the old college try, I promise. <laughs> I
0: saw you, you. You can't see this one. It's not a live cast, but you should have seen him. At there, like shaking his head to me as as he has once. Clearly, through. Billie Jean is
1: the song to go with there, Jeff. Just just such that, poor taste.
0: I know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of low class. What can I say? <laughs> so this episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Warden of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone. And Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show.
1: Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Patrick D., a Kingsguard knight, who asks, Hi guys, love everything you guys put out, it is always the best, so keep up the great work. My question is, will we see Jon in the Winds of Winter, or will we see him in A Dream of Spring? Also, will he be the same once he gets resurrected, or will he become more wolfish and savage? Well, Pat, it's an interesting question, but you know, John's dead. So yeah, I mean, there it is. We're done. Moving We're on. Done. John Snow's dead. Like George Martin said, when someone asked him about John, John's dead. Well, I, don't, I don't know what else I could have to say on the subject. What do you think, Jeff? I
0: I agree with you. So, anyways, the synopsis for this. No, so yes. So this this is a this is an excellent question. This gets brought up in some frequency about whether. John will come back in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring. And I'm also going to expand the question out to to one other thing, and that's whether John will remain a point of view character, because that is also a question that comes up with some frequency. So my opinion, we are going to see John in The Winds of Winter. I have to believe that he's going to be resurrected or come back to life in some form early to mid portion of The Winds of Winter. Again, George has said he's going to open the book with the two battles, the battles of Marine and the battles of Winterfell. So that's going to occupy a fair amount of time. We're also going to see the Battle of Storm's End. We're going to see the Euron versus the Red Wine Fleet confrontation. But after that, we can finally get to like the stuff that George originally planned for The Winds of Winter. That is namely that Jon Snow will be coming back in some form. Likely we'll be seeing his chapters first through the perspective of his direwolf ghost, as many people have theorized and we are big fans of that theory. Um, I-, I think it's important why we're going to see him in The Winds of Winter. Because one of the things that George has done as the narrative has progressed is that he's advanced the concept of magic, and mostly what he's done in advancing it is that he's slowly introducing it more and more. So this ob- so this this idea of resurrection, we first see we see it a little bit in Drogo when he's kind of brought back to life, but it's not really a life that he's really enjoying. He's barely alive. He's alive. He can walk around. Um, he can follow the light a little bit with his eyes, but that's that's really it. But it really gets expanded upon more in Storm of Swords with the resurrection of Beric Dondarrion via R'hlloric magic, via Thoris and Mir. And we have, uh, have Beric you know, forgetting his memories, losing his memories, kind of losing himself and kind of seeming much more corpse-like. And then in the Dance with Dragons prologue, we get the whole idea of Varamir six skins um, coming back to life several six six times before he sees it in his current form – and we get the same imagery of Varamir losing his, his memories through uh, through the resurrection by, by the cold. Now, I think it's important for John to come back and to be a point of view character because I think George wants to explore what resurrection does. And I think f- for George, he's said a whole lot of things about how he's thought that the return of Gandalf the Grey as Gandalf the White was a bad decision on Tolkien's part and that he thought that Gandalf's death was meaningful and had purpose – And the narrative – so the question then becomes like, well, why are you bringing characters back like Beric and Varamir, potentially Melisandre? Why would you bring back a character like Jon? And I think the reason why George is going to do that is that he wants to explore that his characters that come back to life are worse for the wear. They're not going to become Gandalf the White. Jon's not going to come back from the dead as this better character. I think he's going to come back a lot worse for the wear. Uh, Like we talked about in our last episode with – with Jane Poole, it's possible that when he sees Jane Poole and he says, ah, this is, this is Aria, your sister's Arya," He'll be like, I, I, I guess I, the memories kind of fade, man. Like, I mean, I think that's supposed to be a sad note on John's part. And the other thing that George has talked about recently, I think last year or the year before that was about the idea of, of fire whites. And that's a kind of a concept that we, is not in the narrative yet, but it seems to be something that George is thinking about and what that means so, John returning as a fire white, fire raloric magic seems to be something that George wants to explore. So, I, I think that's why we're going to see John come back and that George wants to talk about the cost of magic and the cost of returning back to life. And I think John is a great character to do that because he's been the most – I mean, by and large, he's been the most noble, best good character in A Song of Ice and Fire, the most traditional hero type character in the story. And to see him come back worse for the wearer, acting much more wolfish and savage, like Patrick D. points out, is going to be a really interesting touch on Martin's part that's going to really flesh out the narrative and flesh out the magical universe within A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything you were saying there for sure. I think John has to come back in the winds of winter. There's simply too much he has to accomplish, too many things he has to learn about, characters he has to reunite with, big political decisions to make, boat sex to have. (laughs) The Winds of Winter might be a little overstuffed because of this. I'm sure that's part of something George is wrestling with, as you say, featuring those battles he originally intended for a dance with dragons while still exploring these character arcs meant for the Winds of Winter. And I think we will see a ghost POV as part of that, but probably only briefly. I would imagine only one chapter. And agreed. I think he's going to come back changed and come back different. Not like a, a blank slate, but I think you're right. We definitely see preparation for that. Earlier in the text, especially Barrack, someone with only the noblest of intentions, but who right. speaks to this kind of alienation from himself, this disassociation and feeling emptied out, like he has no memories of, of life before he was a fire white. And I do think that emotionally, thematically sets the tone for what we're going to see with John. You know, I don't know if he's going to be going around growling and biting people, <laughs> but he might feel like it. He might feel like he wants yeah. to, and that's going to be something he has to mentally deal with. And that's going to be an important part of John being a POV. As you say, Barrack wasn't a POV. Catelyn stops being a POV but she comes back from the dead. Veramir, we see it very briefly, him ascending to the second life. But I think John is where we're really going to see Martin exploring how that feels from the inside, and that's going to be really interesting to see, and definitely push the magical plot forward, as you say.
0: The second part of the question was about what Jon's going to be returning as he can be more wolfish and savage. I think it's very much going to be in evidence here. And I do think there's a, as we often cite, one of our, our influences is Adam Feldman's Marinese blot essays that he wrote back in 2013, and which he talked about what that's going to mean for John when he returns back, I think in his final essay from his Other Wars series, in which he talks about John's arc in A Dance with Dragons. And one of the things that Adam mentions in that final essay is that what's John going to be like and like, what are the decisions that he's going to make when he returns back? Is he going to be less concerned about the preservation of innocent life? Is he going to be more concerned about grabbing up political power as you know his Vows of the Night's Watch are over and done with. And that's something that I'm very, very interested to explore in the Winds of Winter and to see what John is like. Because he ain't gonna be the same guy that we saw him in a Dance of Dragons attempting to bring the wildlings south of the wall, make the watch ready for the coming of the others. You know, our our friend LML has talked about that John might resemble a character like Cold Hands. He might not have hunger. He might not have a need to sleep. And maybe that's all for the better for defending the realms of men against the threat of the others. At the same time, there's a huge cost to John that he's not going to be the same. Him coming back as like a cold hands slash barrack slash Varamyr type character is going to have very much is going to have very strong uh, negative, in my opinion, consequences for John. And it's going to mean that he's going to be a different, worse character on the inside even as he does, hopefully good for the realm in, in fending off the invasion by the uh, by the others,
1: I think John's motivations will stay largely the same, but his connection to humanity the the one on one warmth, I think is going to fade. you know the one yeah. we saw between him and Sam earlier in this first book, his love for his family, connections to people like Saturn and Tormund. I think that's the part of him that he's going to struggle to recapture. As you say, Arya's return, or not Arya's return as Jane Poole, might prove to be an instigating moment in that regard. But I think that's that's what he's going to struggle with. I don't know if he's going to feel, I don't know if he's going to become malicious, but I do think he's going to feel detached from humanity and confused about who (laughs) and what he is. And I think we're going to get a lot of great internal drama on that for our board, Johnny Snow.
0: Yeah, I can totally agree with that. So thank you, Sir Patrick D, for the question. Excellent question. As we, as the Winds winner is definitely coming out next week. As always, we'll be on the lookout for that. And as you guys are listening to this episode here on this Monday, be aware that on our Patreon, we'll be having, we'll be releasing our next Patreon-only episode entitled "The Shadow of a Crown," an analysis of Jon Snow and Young Griff, aka Aegon Targaryen. AKA Aegon Blackfire, AKA Aegon Brightfire, whatever you want to call him. Uh, but that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be doing that again with Grant, AKA Heathen King, which will, be a, which will be a whole lot of fun. So check your Patreon feeds for that. And if you're not a patron yet, it will be available for all of our $5 and above patrons at patreon.com forward slash noticast A S O I A F.
1: Egan 6 versus Egan 7. Egon Bowl. Oh. Egg and Bowl. Hell sh- yeah, that's what we should have named we the We should have called it Egg and Bull. We always come up with the good funny <laughs> titles after the serious titles. This is always our cross to bear here on the Nauticast.
0: This is very, very true. So, this analysis is on A Game of Thrones John 7, and here is the synopsis for John of the Dead. At long last, Jon Snow's plot finally begins in A Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes, sure, George has built the character foundation for John and given him some excellent plot moments in the story, but here... Finally here, John's story erupts into a plot and sends him on a course he's still on even as the Winds of Winter drops again next week. Remember that hand that Ghost found at the end of John's chapter like 30 years ago when we covered this chap- the last John chapter? Well, it belonged to a Night's Watchman, J for Flowers, but he wasn't the only dead man present. Arthur was there too. And these guys, well, you can have to remember all the way back to, like, I think, like, February March when we last covered this chapter. They were the guys that went with Benjen Stark north of the wall in his ranging. And the fact that these guys are now dead leaves Jon feeling numb inside as he thinks about his uncle. But about these guys, there's something very, very, very off about them. Their faces are pale white, their hands are black, and they stare at the sky with bright blue eyes. And there was the matter of the horses – the garrons that Elsie Mormont and his men brought to the location of the bodies wouldn't go near these dead men. And the dogs were even worse. When they tried to get the dogs to take a scent from the hand that Ghost brought them, the dogs snarled and whimpered and pulled away from them. It is only a wood, John told himself, and they're only dead men. But is it only wood and are they only dead men, John? We'll find out. As it happens, John had had a dream that night before, where he was back in Winterfell, wandering the castle, looking for his father. And of course, because this is a John dream, he'd gone down into the crypts. But this time, he'd gone down farther than before. And in the depths, John saw the vaults opening and the dead kings coming out from their graves. John had very correctly awoken from that dream then, and he ended up walking the wall with ghosts that entire the entire rest of the night, reassuring himself that it was only a dream. But was it? Was it only a dream? No, it wasn't. Back at the Dead Man, the Haunted Forest, Sam O'Tarley is there, but he's not enjoying the experience. He can't even look at the Dead Man. When John tells him that he has to look and that he's Maester Eamon's eyes, Sam retorts that he's a coward. Well, okay, but there's a dozen Rangers around, John reassures Sam. No one's going to hurt you, pal. So Sam finally looks. John keeps his hand on Sam Dwell's arm to ensure he doesn't flinch, and then Sam can't stop staring at that point. But enough on that for the moment. L.C. Mormont states that there were six men on the original ranging that Benjen Stark took, but there's only two dead men here. He turns to to Jeremy Riker, one of his rangers, and asks, where are the other four? Well, how the fuck would Jeremy know? Well, our good L.C. 8 letting this one go. Two of our brothers butchered almost within sight of the wall, yet your rangers heard nothing, saw nothing. Is that what the Night's Watch has fallen to? Do we still sweep these woods? Well, yeah, but do we still mount watches? Sure, but this man wears a hunting horn. Must I suppose that he died without sounding it? Or have your rangers all gone deaf as well as blind? Well, you would be shocked to find out that Jeremy is unhappy with Mormont's passive aggressiveness here. There was no horn sounded, Jeremy assures Mormont. And besides, there ain't enough men to mount rangings these days since benjamin has been gone. Fine, fine. But then how do they die? Well, I guess kind of looks like Arthur's axe was used against Jafer as there's a nasty gash in his neck. But there's no wound in evidence for Jafer. He's pale as milk glass, but his hands are black. And his eyes? Ah, yes. Again, quite blue, like sapphires. They were probably, you know, killed by acid ass- axes, Jeremy says. Uh-huh. So this is Mance's work, Warman asks. Of course it is. Who else? John could have told him. He knew. They all knew. Yet no one would. Yet no man of them would say the words. The others are only a story, a tale to make children shiver. If they ever lived at all, they are gone eight thousand years. And John wasn't some foolish boy listening to old Nan's stories anymore with Bran Robin Rickon, with Bran Robin Arya. He was a man grown. Anyways, back to the action. If Ben Stark had come under wildling attack a half-day's ride from Castle Black, he would have returned for more men, chased the killers through all seven hells, and brought me back their their heads. Well, sure, but what if Benjen was dead too? (sighs) Well, if John was ill at ease earlier, he's much more so now. He would cling to the hope that his uncle was alive, even if it was a stubborn folly. Ah, but now we have to get a little timeline marker, as Jeremy states that it's been nearly six months since Benjen left Castle Black to go ranging north of the Wall. So Arthur and Jafer were probably the last two survivors of the party, but they were ambushed before they could get south of the Wall. Besides, these corpses can't have been dead for more than a day. No, Samo squeaks. Everyone is startled, but they turn to Sam. Jeremy gets all huffy and says he didn't ask for Sam's input, but John tells Jeremy, "But John tells Jeremy to shut the fuck up and Mormon allows Sam to talk." Y- y- you could see where Ghost you know, John Steerwolf. You could see where he tore off that man's hand, and yet the stump hasn't bled. Look, hot damn, Sam is right. The place where the hand was torn from Jafar was dry, crusty. If he'd only died a day before, the blood would still be flowing, and the corpse would reek of death. But as our boy Dywin takes a sniff, you know, remember Dywin, one of our little fan faves? He says, yeah, they don't smell great, but they don't smell like corpses either. Oh, and didn't these bros have brown eyes instead of these blue eyes staring out into nothing? Hmm, that sounds familiar. I feel like I've heard this before. It's been (laughs) maybe a year. I don't Mm -hmm. know. We'll, We'll talk about it. Well, if the whole experience was unsettling before, it's quickly becoming much, much worse. Burn them, someone says. Someone else takes up the call. Burn them. And who are those two unnamed watchmen? It's fucking me. It's it's Emmett. It's the, it's the reader. <laughs> fucking burn, baby. Burn. Disco Inferno. Burn them now. Burn those bodies down. Not yet. I want Maester Eamon to have a look at them, Mormont says. We'll bring them back to the wall. What? Are you fucking serious, Mormont? Mission creep? Again? This early? Man, I forgot about this. Oh, Mormont. Well, they try to strap the dead men onto the horses, but even the goddamn horses are like, burn them, you fucking morons. They refuse to bear the burden. So the Night's Watchmen end up cutting sticks and making makeshift sleds and dragging the dead men back. Meanwhile, Mormont commands Sir Jeremy to do his job for once and scout the goddamn woods. And then everyone rides back to the wall in silence with a damp, gray, overcast sky above them. Hmm, that sounds a little familiar and not at all ominous again, doesn't it? John rides back in silence as well, thinking... And then thinking, thinking, and thinking about how this was a spirit summer, and that winter would be along awful soon. The last winter the last real winter was when he was a baby. Ghost pads alongside of John for a while, but then he's off to hunt in the forest. John searches the shadows, looking, watching, fearing. He had heard old Nan's stories, the ones about the others and how they came in the darkness, rode pale dead horses, hated iron and fire, you know the rest of the bit from from Brand 4. But at last, John sees the wall, and man is he ever relieved. He beckons Sam over and tells him that, you know, Sam, you did a great job back in the Haunted Forest. Sam blushes and stammers out of courtesy, and it's kind of a cute little scene here, in contrast to the horror we're about to experience. And finally, ghost appears at the clearing before the wall. A single horn blast is heard from the top of the wall. Rangers returning. At the entrance of the gate, Bowen Marsh awaits the company. He's got news. There's a letter, and Mormont needs to come at once. When the good Elsie asks what it's about, Bowen gives John. Of all people, a weird look before repeating that Mormont needs to come at once to Maester Aemon Solar. So Mormont takes off and John heads into the castle courtyard. And as John heads in, he looks around and everyone is staring at him. He passes by Sir Alistair Thorne, who proceeds to stare at John as well, but then, in contrast to everyone else, he smiles at John like an idiot. John knows that something is up as he watches the dead men carried to the ice cells. No need to worry about them, right? Right. Anyways, John seeks Pip and Gran out, and when he finds them, they tell him that Robert Baratheon is dead. John is stunned by the news. Sure, Robert was fat and old-looking, but he seemed healthy enough when he last saw him back at Winterfell. But regardless, now that Robert was dead, that meant that his father Ned would return to Winterfell and bring Arya and Sansa back, right? Right? No, of course not. And since he was coming back... John could ask Ned about his mother, and he wouldn't even care if she was some sex worker or not. He just wanted to know who she was. Sorry. Thanks, Thanks for that, George. Thanks. Again, a little emotional punch right there. Anyhow, Pip asks if the dead men brought back were Benjamins' men. Yeah, they were. They'd been dead and their bodies were strange. But, you know, go ask Sam about that bit. Sam needs to go attend to the LC. John leaves his friends and heads up to Mormont's chambers. There he meets up with Mormont and Bloodraven, um, I mean Mormont's (laughs) raven. Corn, Bloodraven cries. He's going to say this a lot. You see, whenever the bird says corn, it's a complex code that means nothing, fucking nothing. More on this later. Elsie Mormont asks for a mug of wine and he tells John to pour one for himself. What? John pour himself a mug? Uh, okay, sure. He pours slowly and returns to Mormont with wines in hand. It's about my father, isn't it? he asks Mormont. Yep. Daddy, Ned, and Robert. And it ain't good news, boy. Robert's died in a hunt because the things we love destroy us every time, lad, Mormont says before reminiscing about Jorah and his former wife Lyness. Hmm. Oh, and he also tells John to get drinking. There's hard news. Ned's in jail, and he's in jail for treason. No, John says at once. That couldn't be. My father would never betray the king. Well, John's not wrong, give him that. You see, in John's mind, Ned would never dishonor himself. But then John stops the thought dead in its tracks. Uh, well, about the dishonor bit, there was that one time where he fathered a bastard. But what's to happen to Ned now, John asks? Well, Mormont doesn't know. But the LC knows a few members of the small council, Barristan and Pycelle primarily. Maybe he can write and get Ned to come take the black. That gets John thinking. Sure, it, it sucks that Ned is accused of treason, but maybe Ned could come here to the wall and redeem his honor even though it would be a monstrous injustice to steal Winterfell from Ned. But if it meant his life, and would it matter with Joffrey on the throne? Maybe, maybe not. It was probably in Cersei's hands anyways. (laughs) It's not. And speaking of women, it was a bad thing what your lady mother did in abducting Tyrion as Lady Stark is not my mother, John reminded Mormont sharply. And then, to echo every idiot fanboy out there, John says that Catelyn is as much to blame for Ned's downfall as Cersei. Wrong, John. Bad, John. Don't say stuff like that. That's stupid and wrong and ugly. But John asks after both his sisters, Arya and Sansa. Interesting contrast to both Arya and Sansa's last two chapters, but they didn't think about the other. Correct, John. Good, John. You finally asked. Yes, you're you finally asking the right questions. Well, Pysel didn't mention anything about Sansa and Arya in his letter. And then Mormont transitions. This could not have happened at a worse time. If ever the realm needed a strong king. There are dark days and cold nights ahead. I feel it in my bones. Do you, Mormont? Do you? Could your sense of foreboding have anything to do with bringing in wrong-ass corpses with blue eyes and no stink of death on them? No? No? God damn it, Mormont. Fucking god damn it. (sighs) Mormont returns to more immediate matters. Mormont returns to more immediate matters, though. John, I hope you're not thinking of doing anything stupid, boy. Well, as a matter of fact, John had been thinking about doing something stupid, and he had been thinking about Ned at that very moment. So instead of answering, John takes another long sip of wine. Mormont tells him to get lost, but remember something. Your duty is here now, John. Your old life ended when you took the Black. Whatever they do in King's Landing is none of our concern. Hmm. The Night's Watch takes no part. I wonder, Emmett, is that going to be an enduring internal struggle for John throughout the rest of his arc? It's, nah. it's an open question. Nah. Probably a red just, herring. Probably a red herring, yeah. Well, John doesn't remember leaving, but the next thing he knows, he's heading down the tower stairs, wondering how the fate of his father and sisters could be none of his concern. It's a fair question, at the very least. And then a north wind starts blowing as the sun goes down. And boy, oh boy, love you, George, and that non ominous, extremely subtle foreshadowing that you're going with here about what's going to be, what's about to happen and go down in this chapter. Whew. When he makes it back to his friends at the common hall for dinner, he knows that they know. Even Three Finger hob I think our first reference to Three Finger Hob, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong on that, gives John an extra portion of dinner. And as John listens to his brothers talk about how Ned is their father as much as his, interesting that little moment there, John realizes that these guys are as much his brothers as Rob, Bran, and Rickon. Ah, uh, except for you know Alistair Thorne, who's all chortling it, it like an idiot about how John was not only a bastard, but a traitor's bastard. Yeah, fuck that guy. He ain't my bro, John thinks as he jumps up to his feet, dagger in hand. Pip tries to grab him, but John wrenches away and runs down the table, knife in hand, looking to put a stab right through Thorne's eyes. It was only when Sam jumped in the way, slowing John, and then Pip jumped on John's back, with Bren grabbing John's arm, and Toad wrenching the knife away from John's fingers that Alistair's life was saved. Unfortunately, unfortunately, open question. We fast forward to John in his sleeping cell. Mormont comes to visit, telling John that he told him not to do something so goddamn stupid and to think. I had such high hopes for you, Mormont says. As he takes John as he takes John's knife and disarms him and confines him to quarters. A guard is placed outside his door to make certain he didn't perform further stupidity, and his friends can't visit him either. But thankfully, they do allow Ghost to stay in John's room. Which, yeah, really good moment that. Alone with Ghost now, John tells Ghost that Ned ain't a traitor. John takes a seat on the floor and watches the candle on the table. The flame flickered and swayed. The shadows moved around him. The room seemed to grow darker, colder. Gather round, boys and girls, this just became a ghost story. John thinks he won't sleep, but he seemingly dozes off only to wake up to find Ghost standing on his hind legs at the door, pawing at it with a ferocity. Oh, and his fangs are bared in a silent snarl. John tries to reassure Ghost that it's only him, but then John realizes it's really, really cold now. And when did that happen? Ghost takes a step back from the door, and John realizes that the direwolf has left huge gashes in the door. So Ghost is going crazy. It's suddenly exceptionally cold and dark out. There's someone out there, isn't there? John whispers to Ghost. The direwolf braces backwards, fur rising on the back of his neck. John tries one last time to close his eyes and go back to sleep by reassuring himself that Ghost is just smelling the man who was posted at John's door. And to kind of further this reassurement, John gets up and starts creep creeping over to the door to make sure everything is all right. And of course, everything is not all right. John opens the door and finds that the guard is dead, his head twisted around. John is in shocked disbelief. Here, at Elsie Mormont's tower, I'm having a dream. I'm having a nightmare. Ghost bolts past John and makes for the stairs, and that's when John hears it the soft scrape of boot on the ground and the turning of a latch. And it's all coming from above, from Lord Mormont's chambers. A nightmare this may be, yet this was no dream. John notices that the guard still has a sword on. He grabs it and heads up the stairs with shadows swirling around him. Fortunately, Ghost is with John the whole way. Mormont's raven shrieks as John enters the room, screaming "corn" over and over again. John bursts into Mormont's room, sword in hand, and searches the darkness. "Who's there?" he calls out. And suddenly, one of the shadows slides forward, and John looks horrified to see that it's a man in all black, cloaked, hooded, with eyes shining with an icy blue radiance. Ghost jumps the shape, and the wolf and white go tumbling to the ground as Blood Raven shouts for corn. John moves towards the window, ripping down the curtain so that he could see better. Finally, he sees black hands tightening around Ghost's throat, and John doesn't have time to be afraid. He lunges forward, bringing his long sword down, chopping one of the hands off of the white. But something was wrong. The sound was strange. The smell was so queer and cold that John almost gagged. Meanwhile, Ghost wriggled away from the other hand, and then the hooded man turned to John. John slashed with his long longsword his face, opening wound in the man's face, and from nose to cheek to cheek. But those eyes... The eyes, the eyes, the eyes, like blue stars burning. And suddenly John looks and knows who this is. Arthur. John thought, reeling back. Gods, he's dead. He's dead. I saw him dead. It gets worse because it has to. This is Song of Ice and Fire. John feels something in his ankle. It's that fucking arm he chopped off, crawling up his leg. John is horrified. He pries the arm off his leg and flips it away, but then Arthur lunges at John. John tries to keep the white at bay, but then Arthur slams into John. as ghost eats away at the hand on the floor. John falls backwards, and the fall takes his breath away, and he loses his sword. When John tries to scream, Arthur shoves his fingers into John's mouth and down his throat. John is choking as ice fingers reach farther and farther down his throat. Arthur spaces up against John's with frost in his blue, blue eyes. John tries everything he can to keep from dying. He bites, he punches, but it's only when Ghost jumps Arthur that the weight gives way, and John can breathe again. John watches Ghost rip out Arthur's gut, and it's only then he remembers he needs to find that fucking sword, and now. But then John sees Elsie Mormont naked and holding a lamplight as the white arm approaches the Lord Commander. John tries to shout at the Elsie, but his voice is gone. So instead, John staggers to his seat, kicks the arm away, jumps, grabs the lamp from Mormont. Burn, the raven called. Burn, burn, burn. John spins, notices the drapes he pulled down from earlier. He flings the lamp onto the cloth, and the drapes go up in flames. John shouts for Ghost, and Ghost wrenches free from Arthur. The white tries to get up as his guts spill from the gash Ghost left him. John thrusts his hand into the fire, grabbing a fistful of burning drapes, and whips them at Arthur. Let it burn, John prays as the cloth smothered the corpse. Gods, please, please, let it burn. And that is the end of A Game of Thrones John 7. And holy shit, that chapter went to 11 quick, fast, in a hurry. And wow, damn it, watch George write an amazing, compelling action scene. That was fucking fantastic,
1: right? Hell yeah. For such a Herculean synopsis on your part, sir, I should come in with some brilliant, sterling analysis. But <laughs> to be honest, my first reaction to this chapter isn't analytical at all. It's just, hooray, zombies! Zombies! The zombies are here, guys. The zombies are here for yeah. dinner. I, uh, I love a good zombie attack more than any other monster archetype, in fact which may help explain my love for this series because it's full of zombies of various forms, as we were touching on earlier. <laughs> and I'll, I'll get more into my love for the genre and I, how it, I think it relates to the scene a little later in the episode. But just generally the sense of dread and wrongness you get with the living dead is like nothing else because they're both the most human and the least human of monsters. Hmm. Most human in that they are recognizably human beings who were very right. recently walking and talking and among us, but also the least because the humanity has just been pulled out of them. And so even yeah. while like a, a werewolf or a vampire might not physically resemble a human as much as a zombie does, they tend to have more human personalities Whereas with the zombie you just get this void and that's what's so frightening about it. It's like the biological equivalent of the uncanny valley in robotics yeah. is how I think about it. But John 7 has to be more than just a jump scare, of course. It has to be an effective and memorable reintroduction of the overarching magical plot because mm-hmm. that's been missing in action since Bran's fever dream as King's Landing politics took center stage in this first book. So really what allows this chapter to accomplish that task is above all its precise structure.
0: Yeah. You're right about that. Like this chapter, when I was reviewing and reading it, it is very much a song of ice and fire and, or a game of Thrones and kind of three act microcosm. Oh yeah. You know, you know the first act is very similar to the prologue with, you know, something not being right about these dead men. The dead men have moved camp as Waymar Royce tells, uh, tells his two supporters yes. there. And the second act where John returns back to the wall is kind of, very similar to like the King's Landing plot and that suddenly you forget about the dead men. They're kind of escorted away off screen and off stage. So John refocuses his attention to what's going on in King's Landing and the politics of the realm. And John forgets about the dead men as word of his father's arrest sends John to action against Sir or Thorne. And the third and final act is recognizing, oh yeah, the politics of the realm are important and all that. But it's like Mormont says at the end of John's final Game of Thrones chapter. When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? Not not really, right?
1: That's a great point. I think you can absolutely see how the structure of this chapter is meant to stand into the series as a whole. And it on a smaller level, it just works so well as an example of an author writing himself out of a hole. Because I think coming back to this chapter, I could feel the author sitting down to him and saying to himself, Okay, how do I preserve the surprise here? How do I make right. the zombie attack shocking to the reader? Because in order to do that, he's running up several hills at once. Because... The reader has already seen the zombification process at work with Waymar Royce in the prologue. We've already seen that the others can bring back dead people with, you know, with the blue eyes and the the instinct to choke and kill. We've already seen that. We have this entire opening scene with Sam in the Weirwood Grove emphasizing how off-putting the bodies are, how weird they are. Their eyes have changed. The animals aren't going near them. All classic zombie stuff. And just in general media literacy regarding zombies is pretty firmly established in a general audience by the time you get to the release of this book. Now, it's yes. not quite the same as it is now, which, again, I'm going to get into later. But still, I think even the less savvy first-time reader, when they're reading the description of these corpses, pretty much knows what's up and what's going to happen, and that some some form of undead attack is going to take place before the end of this chapter. So how does the author still catch us off guard? How does he still make this the surprise that he wanted to be? And as you say, it's, it's the art of misdirection. By focusing the middle act of the chapter on the ripple effects of Ned's downfall in King's Landing, Martin effectively distracts the reader from yes. the zombie attack. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the chapter is about John and Ned and their relationship, and he's either going to come back, and Alistair forms an asshole, and now John's in his room, <laughs> and what's he going to do? Is he going to leave? So when Ghost starts pawing at the door, and John feels the cold, and he opens up the door to find his guard's head twisted all the way around on his neck, we go, oh, right, shit, zombies. That's what this chapter's about. And that's how Martin preserves a surprise. And I think that's just a brilliant gambit on his part.
0: I mean, I remember watching Game of Thrones season one because I watched season one before I read the books. And completely forgetting about the the dead Night's Watchmen that they had brought back to the wall when Jon jumps Sir Alistair Thorne in the, in the common hall there. And, and you have that whole line where where Mormon is, is chastising him for being an idiot and stuff like that. That stuff like makes me made me as a as a viewer at the time go like, yeah, okay, that's that's cool and all like that. Then kind of like pushing that whole plot that was introduced at the start of this chapter and the start of the scene from Game of Thrones season one out of my head before it comes roaring back in with the with the entry of the of the whites and the entry of the zombie attack there. And I think it's extremely effective. I think it's extremely effective for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in this, this chapter analysis. But I think the one I want to emphasize here is that it does a fantastic job of showing us that, one, magic is real, and also showing us that it's potent, violent, and visceral. I mean, like the whole attack, everything about that, like you could feel George's writing just kind of coming really into focus here with him, emphasizing the body horror, the terrible fate that befell the guard that was in front of John's tower, the crawling hand. Like these are things that are very visceral that just – Stay with you for days after you read this chapter. Initially,
1: absolutely, that's the benefit of the structure. Is it emphasizes the the jarring interruption, the way it seems to come out of nowhere, and we have to be reminded again that that's what the chapter is about. It's it's Martin breaking the tone on purpose so he can reintroduce the tone later, and I think that's it's a perfect way of structuring this attack. But before any of that, Martin takes his time establishing everything wrong about Jafer and Othor's bodies, and this is it's very useful exposition in terms of how the whites work. It's very creepy. Especially at that moment when they notice their eyes have changed, and then they all just stand around silently absorbing that information, realizing okay. they have no way to contextualize that or explain mm-hmm. that. I love that they don't identify which rangers say we should burn the bodies. It's just the uh, two of them. Just it's like the collective unconsciousness of the Night's Watch whispering, "Oh, we definitely need to burn these bodies. We definitely uh-huh. need to get rid of them." Beyond the exposition, this is a very important character moment for Samuel Tarley. This is the beginning of his Night's Watch. He's just taken his vows, and now he has to transcend his fears. And it's crucial that. What he's afraid of here is not just the bodies. He's afraid of the men around him. He's afraid yeah. of the, uh, the rangers because they are stern, gruff military men like his abusive father. Mm-hmm. And This is consistently a thing with Sam when he has to deal with Stannis, when he has to deal with Marvin the Mage briefly. He kind of stammers and, and freezes up because he's just flashing back to his time with Randall and he has to overcome that here and he does a great job of it. He puts his unique skills to work, spotting things that no one else will and, and getting yeah. gaining in confidence as he goes along and he interweaves them with the observations of the older brothers like Dywin so you get this great total mix where by the time Sam is done pointing out everything disturbing about the blood and the flesh and etc we're we're somehow both grossed out but also very proud of our boy. It's like yeah. oh this is this is spooky and creepy, but we're extremely proud that Sam was able to point it out and you get that great moment where Elsie Mormont who has his blind spots but is a, a good hearted <laughs> leader on the whole calls yes. out Sam and praises him for it, which is really great to see that the nights watch operating you know, first split second, like it's supposed to. You know, I
0: think it's really fun about this chapter two is that George subtly calls back to the first, our first introduction to Jon Snow from Bran's first chapter where they're at the execution of Garrod out there. And one of the things that happens in that chapter, if you guys remember, is that Bran is there at his first execution and he's standing by John and John tells him not to look away. And here we get that same sort of, thematic throughput again for John, where John tells Sam, Sam, you have to look, man. Like, you got to look. You got to see what's going on here. And the fact that Sam is able to look results in a a greater intrinsic and institutional knowledge uh, gaining on the part of the Night's Watch that they're able to understand that, hey, there's something more wrong about these guys simply that they have black hands and blue eyes. Like, they were moved here. They were not... They didn't die a day ago. They've been dead for a long, long time. Or... Even if they weren't dead for a long, long time, there's something very, very strange about these guys.
1: Yep. And then, as you say, the political plot rears its head once more. And uh, this dovetails so beautifully with Jon taking his Night's Watch vows and accepting his place in the Black Brotherhood, because now here's a temptation from his old life. And suddenly he's not a brother among brothers. Suddenly he's the bastard of Winterfell again. Suddenly everyone's looking and pointing, whispering about him because of that old life that he just symbolically at least gave up. and I think this is important to have that moment right after the King's Landing chapters, right after Edard fourteen, Arya four, and Sansa four. It, it links these far flung scenes at one level, just in terms of time and space. You get geographic cohesiveness by having these different storylines comment on each other, but it also allows Ned's downfall and the secrets he's keeping to directly impact Jon's arc. So you get this this thematic cohesiveness where you know the The fall from grace in the King's Landing plot is affecting the fall from grace in Castle Black. And you have most members of John's new family, most members of the Night's Watch, trying to comfort him in this moment. Mormont is being gruff but kind to him. Donal Noy says something nice in passing. His friends are trying to help uh, with that sweet line from Sam about Ned being his father too, which is an interesting inversion Mm -hmm. of the traditional conception of the Night's Watch, where you're giving up your old family. But Sam is saying, no, it works in reverse. Now your old family is my family too, because we're brothers, which is very sweet. So there's, and you get this moment when when John is is hearing all of them say their nice things and hearing all of them be be good friends with each other, and he thinks to himself, "Well, maybe maybe this is my home. Maybe I can give up Winterfell, despite what I've just heard about what's going on with my dad." And he thinks they are my brothers as much as Rob and Brandon and Ripon, but he's so close right. to to putting it behind him, and then that's when Alistair Thorne steps in, and Alistair Thorne is the only member of the Night's Watch who is not kind to John about this, who wants to pry open his two cells and loves that tension. Just because he hates John and wants to be mean to him. Like there's a real hypocrisy with Alistair Thorne, who fought for Eris Targaryen to the end, pretending he cares about treason to Robert Baratheon, whose <laughs> whose regime sent him to the wall. He's just doing it to get at John. And yeah. it works. Like immediately in that instant, John drops his self conception as a member of the Night's Watch, and he's a Stark of Winterfell again, so Alistair Thorne is is not his brother but his enemy. So he, he leaps at him with the dagger. And again, he was he was so close to saying LC is right, it's it's not my business, but when Alistair Thorne laughs at him, he just can't cling to that.
0: Again, it's a super strong character moment for Sean, and that it's not unbelievable that John would react the way that he does. I mean you he's just learned that his father, who he believes is his father, is in prison for treason. He's not sure about the fates of Arya and Sansa. Arya, who he is the closest to of all of his alleged half siblings, that's really hard on John. But John kind of man's up. Kind of he. It's kind of the same thing where you see him slowly realizing throughout his arc in the Game of Thrones. Like, okay, well, I'm not. I'm with these guys. I was noble born. I was. I was trained as as a swordsman in Winterfell. But I have to train these guys, too, because they didn't have that same background. Like He's maturing that way. And then we see him when he is named as a steward instead of a ranger. He's like, he finally accepts that after Sam talks with him. He's like, okay, I could see what they're doing here, and I need to like give up my life and my desires and wants for the good of the realm. And then here, you have that same sort of thematic thing going on where John's is like, okay, I need to like give my family up essentially for dead at this point because this is my new family here. But right at that moment where John is at his most tender emotionally, Alistair just tries to like jab a little knife in him and John nearly jabs a little knife in Alistair right back at him, an actual physical knife in this case for John. Exactly. That's a great but,
1: comparison. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's it's really uh I mean, it's it's fantastic work on, on George's part of writing it, but it's, I mean it's very much a because it's very much a John emotional character beat that we're going to see a lot where John has this Where John has this really interesting dynamic going on in his character where, yes, he's a member of the Night's Watch, but he's still very much tied to Winterfell. And, you know, we do see that kind of tying in Winterfell where he has that dream about the crypts again at the start of this chapter. Like that's supposed to set our understanding for John that, yes, he's a member of the Night's Watch, but he also is a member of House Stark. He feels a kinship to his family as well as he should, as, as well as normal. And you know, something that continues throughout the Song of Ice and Fire. Is he, or isn't he, a part of the Wildlings or a part of the Night's Watch? Is he at, in a Dance with Dragons when Samuel, when Maester Amon tries to present the letter to John, the paper shield, so to speak, we talked about in Edward 14, to write to, to the Lannisters down in King's Landing that they're not taking any parts, since Stannis is only here to help them, and that's all that's really going on in their relationship. <laughs> but it's not that John's like, I don't want to sign this. I can't sign this. I would rather bring ruin and destruction on House Lannister. And you're like, That's the words of a Stark, not of the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And this is a dynamic that's going to continue throughout Jon's arc, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think it's a fantastic one that Jon has a very, not a split personality, but split almost loyalties, I want to say, between Winterfell and to the watch and to the purpose of the watch and to what's going on south of the wall and and in the politics and realms of
1: man. His identity struggle is not as blatant as those of Arya and Sansa whose chapter titles literally change to reflect how their identity is, is being kind of put through the ringer. But right. yeah, Jon's identity arc is, is no less strong for being a little more subtle. And it's you brought up the dream of the crypts, and it's interesting that Jon thinks about that as he's thinking about the dead men, and that's Martin kind of drawing this link between the zombies and the the metaphorical zombies of, of Winterfell. And right. I think that's something he he hammers on over and over in the series, that for him, the the Walking Dead are in part a metaphor for the spirits we carry with us, the ghosts we carry sure. with us everywhere, as Dora says. Our memories, yeah. the people we've lost, the mistakes we've made. I think you see that it, maybe most clearly in Jamie's Weirwood dream, where he sees his former brothers of the Kingsguard and Rhaegar Targaryen, and they seem to be symbolizing the others and the whites to a certain extent, because there's a lot of Long Night imagery in that dream, but it's also just the vengeful ghosts of Jamie's past. Yes. So in a sense, you can see... The zombies in this chapter, as, as, as representing that as that which John cannot give up, as the life he's trying to leave behind but can't, and that's it's it's a quote unquote dead life that is walking because it's not actually right. dead. Exactly. If that makes sense. So, but before we get into the attack itself, as I said, I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> my love for zombies just in general and specifically where, where zombies were as a cultural artifact at the time because we we're reading this in 2019 and it's just a much different media landscape, obviously, in a huge number of ways from the early to mid 90s. But one of them is the positioning of zombies and monsters in general. Zombies, of course, are rooted in sources ranging from Haitian folklore to Frankenstein. There were weird, like, zombie bee movies in, in the 40s and 50s. There's a really good one called I Walked With a Zombie that is, again, rooted in kind of the, the voodoo myths and tropes surrounding zombies. But the tropes we associate with them in the modern day were really codified by filmmaker George Romero. First with a Night of the Living Dead in 1968. That's the black and white one. The they're coming to get you, Barbara. One, where <laughs> they're in. The, it's a few people in the house, and they're boarding up the windows. And it's you know, there's some parts of it that have aged better than others, but it's still overall a genuinely spooky, unsettling film. And it was very influential in its scenario, like the the few people in the house, the swarm. It, obviously, a set up for a lot of zombie stories, but in terms of tone, the real influential movie was the one Romero made a decade later, his follow-up, Dawn of the Dead, which is the one where they're in the shopping mall. And so it's with, you know, all the mannequins and like uh, the people f- having fantasies about just living in the mall post-apocalyptic. And <laughs> it's a much more goofy, slapsticky, cynical, more cynical than suspenseful kind of movie. And yeah. that's the tone that prevailed in the wave of zombie movies that followed. Part of the home video wave of the 80s when you get the VHS and people going out to rent movies, you get a lot of goofy, schlocky zombie movies. You get uh, not strictly zombie, but Sam Raimi's Evil Dead movies, they're very much in that tone. Peter Jackson, before he took us to Middle Earth, made this great zombie movie Dead Alive, which is just full of crazy gore. And like a lot of what zombie well, a lot of what zombie stories as a genre were was more about the, the craftsmanship and the storytelling. Like how can we get this gag to work? What kind of makeup are we gonna use? How are we gonna make this head explode? Right. The story and the mood is kind of an afterthought. I think it's important to remember that Martin is writing a Game of Thrones in that context. He's writing yes. it before Resident Evil and twenty-eight days later. He's writing it before Zack Snyder's much less gag-oriented remake of Dawn of the Dead. And, of course, he's writing it before The Walking Dead was the biggest thing on television. In other words, zombies weren't generally scary in 90s pop culture. Like a lot of horror tropes in 90s, they were kind of a joke. The 90s is the decade of scream and scary movie. The 90s is the decade where Bart Simpson raises zombies from the dead using a list of spooky words, including Walmart. Like that's how seriously pop culture took zombies in the 1990s. And it's a different time now. So I think we got to try to, as much as we can, put ourselves back in the mid-90s and recognize that writing a zombie attack, as Martin does here, as a straightforward Night of the Living Dead-esque creep show, as opposed to a more Dawn of the Dead, cynical goof fest, especially in the context of high fantasy, this was relatively rare. something close to unique, and I think that's part of why it got the attention it did in the mid-90s that it might not have now, that this played-straight zombie attack was actually... Uh, kind of a risk and a daring move on Martin's part, and I think it paid off dividends. I think you're right about that, and I do
0: have a question for you as as the zombie expert here on on this. Partly, but well, I, I more of an expert than to be because my my only exposure to to zombies is twenty eight days later, twenty eight weeks later, Walking Dead, both the comics, the graphic novel, and the uh, for sure. show for the first season, first two seasons, and I just gave up after the show after that. Good call. Ah yes, but the uh, the comic is excellent. If you guys have not read it yet, sure. How much? So my question for you is: How much do you think that George's depiction of whites and of zombies from A Game of Thrones on into Clash and Storm had an influence on the type of zombie movies that we saw in the two thousands? The Resident Evils, the Twenty Eight Days Later, The Walking Dead. Do you think there's any sort of cultural throughput? If I and I keep using the word throughput, I just like the word cultural throughput between what George is writing in nineteen in the early 90s that gets published in 1996 that has an impact on later, on the kind of, kind of cultural zeitgeist that kind of forms around zombies in the early 2000s on into today?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I don't know of any explicit links of people saying they were influenced by, uh, by this or Storm of Swords, the zombie attack there. But I think you can see it filtered through a general post-9-11 rise of aggression and kind of alienation and discomfort in genre movies. We were talking before we started recording about Lindsay Ellis' recent video on Independence Day versus War of the Worlds, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, and how, how those two reflect changes and what an audience, a mass audience, was looking for from a disaster alien movie, yeah. alien invasion movie, in the mid-90s versus the mid-aughts. And I think I think Martin may have been a little ahead of his time in that regard. That Interesting. To a certain extent, what he was doing with zombies feels more like what people did with genre fiction in the aughts than what they did with did in the nineties.
0: That's a yeah, a, I think it's a great way of putting it. I mean he's definitely ahead of his time in a lot of in a lot of ways and it makes it still resonant today that we can read this zombie tack they're about to unpack a little bit more and be like, yeah, this is really, really well written and it's very much it, it very much stays similar in in the vein of, of the zombie films and and books that I've I've read in the in the two thousands for sure. I think it, it very much I'm not sure if it started the torch necessarily, as you put it, pointed out, but it's definitely showing us a different version than the ones that we were exposed to in the '90s and kind of the slash films, scream horror films in quotation marks that were in the, that were in vogue in the 1990s. And I think it's it's great. I think it's great that that George is able to write a compelling zombie story here that tells it straight and tells it straight in a straight, horrible, horrible way.
1: And as you're saying, he achieves that by. By very carefully structuring his reveals and and subverting your expectations. Like I think about A Clash of Kings when we, we see the shadow baby in Renly's tent. Right. We've already seen it at work before. We see it again understorms storms then when Melisandre births the, the second one. But the second one is still so horrifying because we didn't see her birth the first one. We had no idea how it came into existence. So there's this extra layer added. So Martin's always thinking about how do I keep this fresh? How do I keep this, this novel and memorable? And uh, I think he it really achieves a nightmarish quality in this particular zombie attack by fixating on the the unnatural details, the things that seem not just violent and scary but wrong. Hmm. Like the guard's head turned around, and how John like takes a minute to realize, wait, what what it is I'm looking at here? Oh, his head is all the way around. That's why it's both his back and his head. Like that's just so unnerving that it took John a second to realize what it even is. Or like you have the. The contradiction of the white being described as a shadow in the shadows, which, you know, visually is just jarring and off-putting. And, of course, then there's the, quote, icy blue radiance of the eyes that have been already noted as being all wrong. And John has this description of them as being like bright blue stars, which uh, puts me in mind of uh, Stephen King's It, because that's how the, the eyes of the, the titular beast, the the clown monster in It, is, is, is bright blue stars for eyes. Again, this is the this is kind of scene that is difficult to analyze much because it's just a, it's just you say it's tense it's it's action it's it's wonderful it keeps on the edge of your seat. But in terms of the larger themes, John is facing some really primal questions that the others and white others and whites bring out of our characters. What do you do against an enemy that will not stop coming that has no concept of mercy that can even lose limbs with impunity? I mean, Martin does give a nod to the goofier schlockier side of zombie fiction with that wriggling arm that keeps going after it's cut off. But that's just to emphasize how unstoppable an enemy this is, and how this is not like, you know, Starkman fighting Lannistermen at the Tower of the Hand. This is something entirely different, a whole different ballgame. And so you need magical allies to help. I mean, Ghost jumps to the rescue here, uh, just like Drogon does at the House of the Undying to save Danny. And given that Ghost is connected repeatedly to the old gods, potentially to Blood Raven himself, it suggests that what we're seeing here is a microcosm of the ongoing struggle between the children and the Green Greenseers versus the others that ghost and the ghost and the way are kind of representing these two sides. And John has to, has to choose, has to take part. And and he does to, to, to the detriment of his hand, but that only shows how far he's willing to go. Oh man.
0: I I've forgotten that after this chapter, we get John constantly flexing his hand for the rest of a song of ice and fire because of he, he burns his hand when he reaches in and grabs the, the massive burning cloth and tosses it at, at author. I think it's it's really I think you make a fantastic point about connecting this with Drogon at the House of the Undying, because how does Drogon actually end up saving Daenerys but through fire, right? He ends yep, up yep. burning the undying at the house of the undying and that's the way that Danny is able to get out of that tower and get into back into uh more normalcy, as opposed to this kind of freaky, awful dream sequence. And this, and it's kind of interesting too that in the house Liam dying, it's very much a tripping, nightmarish dream sequence. And here, John explicitly calls this a nightmare, a waking nightmare, so to speak, in the in this chapter here. So we get that a lot of interesting connections between these two scenes, between the house Liam dying and Drogon rescuing Danny, and with ghosts and John, you know, John using fire to rescue Mormon essentially from being killed by the zombie. I think it's 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 all fascinating stuff that Martin does with the zombie attack. And I think I don't know if you guys could tell when when I was doing the, the chapter synopsis, like it you can just kind of like kind of take off your analysis hat as Emma did as soon as we were done and just kind of just soak in the moment because it is so it's well written. But it's also like very, very exciting. Like, and I think that's it's good on, on George's part that he makes a scene like that so exciting. He doesn't kind of subvert it and make it kind of this kind of peter out or anything like that. Like he ends it. I mean, the chapter essentially ends on a cliffhanger with John praying that the fire is going to work. And you know, so the other thing too. Sorry to, to go back to one more point about the magical elements saving John. Here we also have Mormont's Raven, who is then yep. screaming "burn, burn, burn" against the against against Arthur, and you're like. That's a little odd, right? You know, the, the, the raven was just saying corn. He's just corn, corn, corn. Now he's saying burn, burn, burn. It seems like a little bit of a jump as if he's being controlled by someone. That's someone being Blood Raven, of course, as we will probably not talk about here, we will talk about some future John chapter for sure.
1: The the visceral imagery has the impact it does, though, as we've been saying, because the structure is so perfect, because Martin knows exactly how to build up to it and disorient you and misdirect you so you're just you're primed to just take it in and just soak it in as you say he'll do the same thing with the much larger white attack of the fist of the first Men, where you get that cliffhanger ending in the prologue when chet hears the third horn depending that the others are coming and then in a john chapter we see what's left of the fist like all the pink snow and the dead horses and yeah. only then do we get sam's chapter describing the full extent of things so he, it's just that masterful structure where he you know he 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 builds on everything so beautifully. And speaking of building on things so beautifully, I think that uh, that takes us into our foreshadowing and groundwork section for this episode.
0: Yes. So building into as, as into John's arc, this is John's call it third temptation away from the Night's Watch. Something that is actually going to be sticking with John throughout the rest of his Game of Thrones arc, as he takes his little midnight ride in his final chapter in a Game of Thrones, where he is has this, will he, won't he stick around with the Night's Watch? And this is part of it as well, because Mormont says, you're not thinking of doing something stupid, John, are you? After he reveals that Ned Stark has been arrested for treason. And then again, at the end of A Game of Thrones, he finds out that Ned is dead and Rob is marching south with his army and John wants to join them. So John's will he, won't he leave the Night's Watch is just something that we're going to keep notice of because it's something that's going to animate John's arc Throughout game, clash, storm, dance, and on into the winter, winter we'll probably see its final climax there, where John finally, finally leaves the Nights Watch.
1: Yeah, we're going to see in John eight and nine the way this particular struggle is a microcosm of the larger political versus magical struggle. That essentially John is picking sides in these two wars: the the War of Five Kings versus the Battle for the Dawn. He's he's feeling that pull in either direction. You can definitely see that established in this chapter, and then discussed at length over the course of the next two chapters yes so a classic trope in zombie fiction is that animals freak out around the bodies before they rise or can sense the zombies coming or like as with a lot of natural disasters in both fiction and real life just the animals know first before the people do and that's right. that's a sign so we see that here with the animals other than ghost going nuts around the zombified bodies. And that's going to be repeated when we get to the prologue of the Storm of Swords. As the opening of that prologue, the very beginning of the book, is Chet's dog refusing to hunt <laughs> this, this bear whose tracks Chet has found. And of course, that's because that bear is undead. And it's going, to be, it's going to be coming for the Fist of the First Men at the end of that chapter. So I think you can see Martin uh, relying on that trope very explicitly in this chapter. And then with that knowledge in our minds, kind of slipping it into the prologue of the Storm of Swords.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a fun trope and it's it's I'm glad that George decided to utilize it in a song of Ice and Fire. I, I think whenever the animals start acting nuts, we're supposed to assume that something bad is supposed to happen. You know, mm-hmm. we don't not just see it with something like the the whites, we also see it with the dogs going nuts with Ramsey coming in to dance with dragons and stuff like that. So I I always enjoy that the animals having this kind of greater sense of danger, so to speak, is is a really good is a really good uh way that George kind of plays with this. And kind of like a, similarly, when we're talking about the whites and, and the dead men here, we get our first mention of putting the dead men in the ice cells. You know, in this case, it's just cold storage so that Aemon can review the bodies and kind of examine them. But in A Dance with Dragons, John puts two of the dead wildlings that he finds at the Weirwood Grove from John's also seventh chapter from A Dance with Dragons, and he hopes that they're going to rise from the dead. So John has his conversation with the Knights Watch High Command, and one of them says, Whites are monstrous, unnatural creatures, abominations before the eyes of gods. You you cannot mean to try and talk with them. And then John says, Monsters they may be, but they were men before they died. How much remains? The one I slew was intent on killing Lord Commander Mormont. Plainly, he remembered who he was and where to find him. My lord father used to tell me that a man must know his enemies. We understand little of these whites and less about the others. We need to learn. So John has a understandable point. I mean, it's freaking the Night's Watch out because why wouldn't it freak the Night's Watch out to have dead men rising in in the ice cells there? John's hoping to try and talk with these guys. And what's going to happen when the dead men wake up in the Winds of Winter? Will they talk to John Maybe. Will it be like that super gnarly scene from Independence Day 4, which Emmett referenced earlier, where the hippie scientist, played by Data, is used as a wipe by the aliens with the others telling John that there'll be no peace and they want all the humans to die? I fucking hope so, man. That would be a great scene. And then
1: President Bill Pullman orders the nuke. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of ugly and bad things, this this chapter does bring up something, and you alluded to it earlier, one of the more infamous theories in the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! This theory—we're just going to get
0: this this theory out of the way in this chapter. And we are yep. never going to talk talk about it ever again. Absolutely, uh, it is the infamous corn code theory. Do you guys know the corn code theory? I wish I didn't. Um, I wish I didn't either. But if you guys have never heard of the corn code theory, just <sighs> the basic badness of a, of this theory is that essentially, whenever Mormont's Raven, namely Blood Raven, says something in triplicate, it's a cryptogram with commas representing minor deaths and periods representing... <laughs> Just keep this ridiculous. And periods representing major deaths. You can read the full insanity of the original OP if you're one of our patrons, as we link it in our show notes there. But thank God George actually debunked this theory. He doesn't debunk many, many theories. As we talked about in our Aria 4 chapter, he has not debunked outright the theory that Ciro Pharrell is dead, or rather that Ciro Pharrell is alive. But he did finally debunk this theory in 2013, as Westeros.org user Cat of the First Men says, I went to an appearance by George R. Martin and Michelle Fairley, who plays Catelyn Stark in the show, in Melbourne, Australia tonight, and asked George a question during the book signing at the end. He was signing my DVD cover, sorry people, Google Books, and I asked him whether he puts any codes into his books, because people are talking about them. Bad people are talking about them. He suddenly looked interested and said, what kind of codes? It was a fast-paced book signing, so I really had only a few moments to explain. I said that it could be something like Lord Commander's Ravens screaming, corn, 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 verbally saying the exclamation marks, which would mean somebody is going to die. No time to explain the future versus present tense. He said in a very definite No, then commented that people must have found lots of evidence and joke that if it's there, it's accidental. So thank you, George. Thank you, thank you, thank you for debunking that stupid, ugly, bad theory believed by stupid, stupid ugly people.
1: Yeah, I think that's just a classic case of reading too much into things. And yeah, I mean, violence and danger and death tends to happen a lot in the Night's Watch plots and across the Song sure. of Ice and Fire. So sure. exactly. So that's it's kind of a, a biased conclusion, I think, to be looking for there. It does remind me of some of the wackier theories in the Harry Potter fandom that came out before the last book of that series about like reading bubblegum wrappers and divining <laughs> the feature in them. That series, of course, actually came to its conclusion. So all such bad theories were rightfully executed. And I certainly look forward to that when it comes to a song of ice and fire as well, because mm-hmm. uh, as you say, Martin's not going to personally debunk most theories for good reason. So we have to wait for the books to do it.
0: So that about brings us to our theory discussion piece of this. And we figure what better topic to address than something that is of genuine curiosity and that there's not a definitive answer then, and that there's not a definitive answer about it. And that is what were the others up to with Arthur and J flowers Were they assassins? Did they have some other purpose in mind for them? Again, it's not something that we actually know the answer to yet as of the end of A Dance with Dragons and the Winds of Winter sample chapters. But it is a open mystery. But I think there's some good ideas that Emmett has written down here that can kind of unpack a little bit what's going on with the others, what they're planning, what they're plotting with regards to these two whites and how they interact with the main plot in north and south of the wall.
1: I think you can see clearly that the others are going after the Night's Watch command structure here, that the Whites go for Elsie Mormont and the First Ranger, Jeremy Riker, the most active militant members of of the Night's Watch hierarchy. They are designed to activate not at the Weirwood Grove when they're found, but in Castle Black in the dead of night, presumably to encounter as little defense as possible. So... I mean, I could see two possible conclusions one could reach about what the others are trying to accomplish here. Either this is a warning to not go beyond the wall, or it's designed to kneecap the Night's Watch in some way. And I, I tend to lean towards the latter because if it was just a warning, the bodies would suffice. Like, right. remember the heads that the Return to Castle Black by the Weeper in A Dance with Dragons of the men that, that Jon had sent out ranging? Like, if all the others wanted to do was was leave a warning for the Night's Watch not to, to stop ranging beyond the wall, that the dead men would surely suffice. Animating the bodies on the other side seems at least like a diplomatic move than just an outright attack. I feel like it's comparable in some respects to Tyrion sending false envoys to Riverrun under a peace yes. flag, but then trying to prison break Jaime. It's kind of what the others are up to here. My thought overall is that, you know, Other and Jafer were with Benjen, and I, I think that the others were unable to catch Benjen himself. I know there are some people who think the others are holding on to Benjen for a sacrifice down the road. I feel like they would have done that already if that was the case. I think Benjen's still on the loose, and as such, I think the others are freaked out that they were unable to catch Benjen, and are trying to kneecap any other further rangings of that kind by killing off Mormont and Jeremy Riker. Especially if, as I think, but I I know you might disagree on this count, Benjen got to the Horn of Winter personally ahead of the others as well as Mance. If that's the case, then the others might be really freaking out about the Night's Watch messing with their plans by going beyond the wall, and they're, they're trying to put the kibosh on that. I don't I don't know if they were deliberately trying to lure the Night's Watch out to die beyond the wall. There's no army of whites just like waiting to attack as soon as, soon yeah. as this, this move with Jer- uh, Jafer and O4 goes down. I, I think they attacked at the fist specifically because the horn was there more than to, to wipe out the Night's Watch. So one thing I was thinking while reading this chapter is that this might be one of your classic George R. R. Martin unintended consequences. That this invasion, this great ranging by G. R. Mormont was sparked by an attempt by the others to head it off. Just like how Robert's attempt to assassinate Daenerys and Viserys to avoid a rocky invasion of Westeros ends up inspiring Drogo hmm. to launch that invasion a couple chapters from now.
0: Yeah, I think that's... The, I, I pretty much agree with that, except for the Benjen piece, which we'll talk about when we get to A Clash of Kings. because that's definitely going to be an interesting, perhaps a patron-only episode, because that's worth uh, un- unpacking a bit more. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that the this was an attack, an attempt to kind of chop off the head of the snake on the others, so to speak, with killing off the two members of the Night's Watch who are the most senior guys after Benjamin Stark, Mormon, and Jeremy Riker. I think that what we're seeing here is the others attempting to, like you say, kneecap the Night's Watch in order to prevent them from being as effective as they are gathering all of their whites and attacking Mance Raider's party. And I I, I don't I, I agree with you too is that I, I don't think they were trying to lure the Night's Watch north of the wall necessarily. Perhaps it could be that they were attempting to dissuade the Night's Watch from coming north of the wall so they wouldn't be able to grasp the full threat that the others posed there, that they could be like, okay, so these people are dying. Our our Lord Commander is dead. Our First Ranger is dead. Our other First Ranger is missing. We really can't go north of the wall anymore and figure out what's what the hell's going on. So we need to kind of stay south of the wall and protect ourselves within... Um, but, but using the magical force of the wall itself to, to keep ourselves safe, which, of course, they would not be safe because of the the Horn of Winter being out there and the, the others seemingly attempting to gain possession of it through uh, various means and methods, as we'll talk about when we get close to a clash of kings, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's tough to say because the other interesting aspect of this attack is it demonstrates the others don't care if the rest of Westeros finds out that they're around. Yeah. Like, this is this is kind of a, a big move, a big public move on their part, in a way it wasn't with Waymar Royce, which is an interesting difference. Like, they didn't send Waymar's corpse back to Castle Black yeah. in an attempt to assassinate Gio or Mormont. So why are they taking this risk? And again, that makes me think the difference is Benjamin. that Benjen survived, Benjamin escaped them, and so now the others are a little bit rattled and trying to cut off the Night's Watch leadership before they can interfere with their plans any longer. But it is telling, I think, that... Yeah, Dior Mormon attempts to head off the others entirely as a result of this by sending the hand with Alistair Thorne. It doesn't work, but that still right. feels like it would be a, a threat to the others as a whole, and the others do not seem to care, which is a, an interesting aspect of their plans. And again, something to keep an eye on as we go forward.
0: It really like sets a really uneasy feeling in my stomach because we don't know the full extent of the power of the others yet and the fact that they're willing to deal with the potential that the whole of Westeros could be on the south side of the wall waiting for them to come, and they just don't give a fuck. Like, what sorts of powers and strengths and weapons are they going to bring to the fore that's just going to fuck with Westeros royally? And you just, we just don't know. We we still don't know even after Season 7. We know that they brought the wall down with White Viserion or White Walker Viserion, whatever you want to call it. We don't know in, in A Dance of Dragons how how the others are. Beyond that they're nipping at the heels of the wildling band coming south with Tormund from the wall and taking people in the night. Like That's still like a creepy, unsure thing. It's it's very much the monster in the margins thing that we talked about months and months and months ago where the others are kept off page deliberately in order to bring up the amount of horror and the amount of scariness associated with them. So when they actually land their blow on the wall, seemingly probably in the winds, end of the Winds of Winter, early in Dream of Spring, one of the two, that we're going to see the potential for lots of really terrible things coming down on Westeros that we have no fucking idea about what's what's coming for them as well as the other as well as the nice watchmen have no idea what's coming for them either as well as westeros for that
1: matter. yeah all these earlier texts are really just appetizers before the buffet you know yep. this is just the appetizer for the white attack of the fist of the first Men, and the white attack of the fist of the first Men is is just to prepare us for the actual long night
0: yep. so i think you can
1: see martin just establishing this is the tone this is the mood that i'm going for when the world ends and i, I think he as we as we've been saying, I think he just nails it throughout this chapter, and I think that pretty much brings us to an end for a Game of Thrones John Seven. So, thanks for listening, everybody.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Hope you guys have enjoyed this chapter analysis and review. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Acast. Everywhere and anywhere you can find your podcast. It's also available on Patreon too. We, we do release this episode on our Patreon account at patreon.com/slash/notacastasof, forward where you can find our bonus episodes, like our one upcoming within a few days here about Young Griff and John Snow and their comparisons. Our Shadow of the Crown series, as well as our twelve other there is twelve other Patreon-only episodes at this point, which are available for all five dollars a patrons. There, so check us out at patreoncom forward slash asoaf
1: on social media, you can find us at notacastASOIAF on Twitter. You can also hit us up at Notacast ASOIAF at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at Port Quentin or at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Breddit on Twitter, Breddit Beefish on Reddit,
0: and my website is Wars and Politics, Spice and WordPress.com. So join us next time as Rob Stark calls the banners and marches the wrong way. But off to war in a Game of Thrones brand six, which is going to be a weird finally read the chapter for the first time in like four years and i'm
1: excited to talk about it next week so for sure it's been a long time since we had a brand chapter and this is a really critical one because we get to meet the army of the north people we will be spending a lot of time with in various capacities over the next couple of books as rob leads them into battles splits them up leads them into their next battle and i think martin does a great job of establishing them both as individuals and as a group so we'll have plenty of good military stuff to talk about there to, to make your heart happy just as the zombies made my heart happy this week oh man it's going to be awesome. excellent. It's going to be.
0: Awesome. Ah, can't wait. <laughs> so, we will see you guys next week.